In my own life and work, I think one of the best examples I've seen of how ideology and compassion really have so little to do with each other is when I've done volunteer work. If you volunteer at, say, a homeless shelter, you will find a very wide range, not just of people who wind up homeless, but a very wide range of volunteers. For all of their ideological differences, the one thing they have in common is that they are all very willing and eager to show up and do important work for other people. Professor Alex Small. On today's episode, we look at the increasing use of diversity statements to hire, recruit, and promote in higher education. I'm Zach Rausch. This is Heterodox Out Loud. Over the past few years, there's been a sharp rise in the use of diversity, equity, and inclusion statements to determine who should and should not be part of academic communities. Our guest on the show is Alex Small. He's professor of physics at California State Polytechnic University. Alex argues that while inclusion statements are aimed at highlighting caring, compassionate behavior by students and professors, they may simply be filtering for conformity. Alex's blog post is called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Statements, Compassion Filter, or Ideological Test. Before we chat, here's his blog post from our website. It's read by Jonathan Todd Ross. The Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, DEI, statement is nearly standard in tenure-track faculty job applications and even tenure promotion files. Construed charitably, it's a trivial hurdle. As one large public institution put it, through your own statements of contributions to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you can tell us how your past, present, and future activities have or will contribute to our mission of promoting equity and inclusion or have shaped your perspective on this issue. Understandably, institutions increasingly want more than just an essay on getting along. For instance, some reasonably recommend that applicants discuss their experience mentoring disadvantaged students, Since not everyone can be a prolific mentor before landing a professorship, some writers advise faculty aspirants lacking such experience to discuss systemic aspects of inequality and underrepresentation, or explain how they will work to create inclusive environments. If such advice leaves one unsure about what to say, Consider the response when a mathematics department chair and professional society officer criticized the requirement, fearing it would function as an ideological litmus test. Dueling open letters with hundreds of signatories and some alleging that she harmed the mathematics community, particularly mathematicians from marginalized backgrounds. Young academics who lack professional security face obvious incentives to simply provide the answers the committee wants to hear. Mandating DEI statements will not improve the teaching, research, and mentoring work of universities because of pitfalls inherent to screening people for their opinions. First, hiring processes incentivizing the espousal of safe views on controversial social issues encourage educators to uncritically repeat apparent consensus stances 
on the hardest questions educational institutions face. This is even, especially, true if social issues are unrelated to one's field of investigation. In DEI discourse, equity refers to the equality of outcomes in society, a subject of long debate in philosophy since Plato discussed the proper education of an elite class. Should we screen physics professors on how they will contribute to that debate? Second, there is a paucity of evidence that selecting for social views will net more effective and compassionate teachers and mentors. When a student struggles in class because they are also working to provide for their siblings, a common issue, the instructor's opinions about identity and social structures are less important than a willingness to adjust office hours for the student's work schedule or offer a second chance after poor performance during a challenging time. Anyone can say that they will work hard to help students. Only time will tell if they act as promised. Offering the right sentiments in an essay about social issues is of little use. In fairness to well-meaning colleagues who support the use of DEI statements, likely what most actually want are compassionate teachers and mentors. They hope, and perhaps assume, that professors who see social issues through lenses of systemic inequality and structural barriers will be more compassionate to struggling students. And perhaps there's a grain of truth to this. Recognizing that many students face challenges beyond the immaturity of youth may make one more inclined to help. However, people of many different ideological stripes can note larger problems and act with compassion. As a thought experiment, consider the people in your life who agree with your social, political, or religious views. Are they all equally compassionate? Do they all go to similar lengths to help others? Now think of your friends and relatives with different viewpoints. Are they, as a rule, less compassionate or helpful for relatives, friends, neighbors, and co-workers? Anecdotes, to be sure, but consider that research suggests progressives have no edge over conservative religious men in assuming equitable responsibility for housework and childcare. We should give fair consideration to teachers and scholars with varying ideas on societal issues. Beyond contemporary U.S. examples, history shows that filtering for correct social views mostly produces slogan-savvy managers. Czech playwright, activist, and post-communist president Václav Havel, in his parable of the greengrocer, noted the irony of a system that violently suppressed workers' uprisings while requiring managers to display signs reading Workers of the World Unite. Further, when piety is advantageous, the ambitious will be pious. For example, literary scholar Iser Nafisi's memoir, Reading Lolita in Tehran, describes the transformation of religious student organizations with the rise of the new religious government. Dr. Nafisi saw that in the early days of the revolution, student leaders were passionate and mission-driven, 
However, once the theocrats had consolidated power, religious organizations attracted career-oriented types with more self-serving motives. That brings us to a final problem with DEI statements in hiring processes. Selecting for correct social views increases incentives to flatter and lie. Most faculty job applicants have spent two or more decades impressing teachers. It should be no surprise if they know what academic interviewers want to hear, or at least what the administration says interviewers should want. Some of the people speaking insincerely will no doubt be passionate teachers and scholars willing to jump through hoops for an opportunity to do good work. But others will be slippery careerists who thrive by flattering. Why give them more chances to leverage their skills? I am confident that American universities will clear the low hurdle of operating more honestly and humanely than communists and theocrats. However, the underlying problem is the same. When institutions declare a particular ideology to be central to their work and require aspiring employees to proclaim agreement, they select for rhetorical compliance rather than whatever decent ideals might motivate such views. To believe that we will somehow do this right when so many other societies failed is to believe that modern Western universities have insights and capabilities that other institutions, including non-Western ones, lack. That conceit sits awkwardly with DEI-motivated desires to decenter Western perspectives. Ultimately, what people of goodwill will presumably want from DEI statements is assurance that the writers will act with compassion for struggling students and respect for people from different cultures. Let us therefore examine track records, not opinions. Contact references who can speak to how the applicant has worked with students and peers. Look for evidence of effective teaching. These actions matter far more than favored words about systemic inequality, or whatever the shibboleth of the day might be. Jonathan Todd Ross reading Alex Small's blog post, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Statements, Compassion Filter, or Ideological Test. Now my discussion with Alex. So you're a physics professor, and I'm wondering, what's your connection to Heterodox Academy, viewpoint diversity, and this issue? So my connection to Heterodox Academy is that I'm a member, and I'm also involved in the writing group, a group of people who critique each other's writing as we write about viewpoint diversity. How I got into viewpoint diversity, it wasn't really via physics as physics. I mean, my my research in physics is pretty basic, even, even in more applied physics. Where I got interested in the more socially oriented aspects of viewpoint diversity was when I took my job as a professor at a more teaching-focused university. And what I noticed is that in a lot of discussions around teaching, especially at workshops sponsored by universities or professional societies, 
there's really a pretty narrow range of perspectives, which on some level is fine. Maybe people converge on things that work. But everyone talked as though embracing whatever is currently the most common or trendy perspective makes you really innovative, which just seems very paradoxical. It would be one thing to say that everybody converged because of evidence. It's another thing to say that everybody converged because they're so clever and creative and unique. It seems very paradoxical to me. And so then what's the connection between what you're talking about here and uh, diversity statements, which this blog really focuses on? Looking at things against the grain for a while, I was primed to notice the increasing prevalence of diversity statements and take issue with them to some extent. I've noticed for a while that institutions are requiring them. Several years ago, my university started requiring them. And what I noticed is that a lot of the rhetoric out there is really pushing towards a narrow range of acceptable stances in diversity statements that you should really go for, again, the most popular view that everyone else is saying. And that seems like a really dumb idea, not just for all the reasons of freedom and viewpoint diversity, but look, we're college professors. We were very good students. We know how to do well on a writing assignment. If you say to someone who's been a good student and done well on writing assignments their entire life, please write an essay that really hammers on these points that the more senior academics around you really want to hear. I mean, we've been trained for this for decades. This is not a test that we're going to fail unless we choose to fail it. So I I don't really see how we're learning anything of use there. So I just want to take a step back and let's uh, talk a little bit about the, the bigger picture here. What exactly are diversity statements? So a diversity statement is something that is included in just about all job applications these days. It's supposed to be an essay where you talk about diversity and how well you will work with diverse groups of people and how well you will understand people from different backgrounds. And on one level, it's a perfectly reasonable thing. Of course, we want people who are capable of working with other people. Most graduate programs are pretty diverse, at least by some measures, okay? Most graduate programs have people from around the world. They might not have a wide range of socioeconomic backgrounds. They might not have people from certain disadvantaged backgrounds and what in the U.S. or other places, but they're going to have people from around the world. So anyone who's been to a graduate program can probably write an essay about working and studying with people from all sorts of backgrounds, and and they can say that it went well and say nice things about it, and that's great. It, it clears a certain minimal threshold. They're really trying to get at issues of disadvantage. So talking about how you you know worked with affluent international students from somewhere. Is not going to be the same as talking about how well you could teach a struggling student from a disadvantaged background in the United States. And they, they want that. I mean, it's sort of written, if you read between the lines, it's clear that that's what they actually want. And again, on one level, I think that's great. On another level, it's a little bit patronizing that, okay, you're going to talk about how well you can help someone who's struggling in class. Now, let's really focus on these ethnic groups. Why is it that discussions of working with certain ethnic groups have to go hand in hand with discussions of doing badly in school. That should bother us a little bit. What is the scope of these statements? How prevalent really are they right now? 
pretty much every job ad you'll ever see for a faculty position or a lot of academic positions besides faculty, administrative positions, will ask for one of them. Many schools, from what I hear, require these as part of tenure files. But as far as how meaningful that scope is, you know, it's, it's not always clear to what extent these things are actually filters rather than checkboxes. But everybody has them and how they use them is highly variable. Right. So they, they really are omnipresent. They're all over, used differently kind of in each university. But like you, you mentioned in the blogs, there are all sorts of issues related to how effective these are in actually meeting their stated goals. Why have they become so entrenched in institutions? What function are they serving? There's a few things. I mean, the best reason is that people genuinely care about diversity and disadvantage. And universities have all made it their mission to address these issues, which is on some level laudable, but on another level sort of runs into the problem of, well, what does it mean to credential an elite and then say that it's not elite, to then say it's not selective, to then say it's inclusive rather than exclusive. But still, there's there's a lot of good intentions. I think a less good reason is that once something gets wrapped up in very hot button issues, once it goes to more than just, hey, write a nice essay about how you got along with your international classmates to tell us what you think about poverty, about disadvantage, about discrimination, and tell us that you're able to talk about the right way. Once it gets really hot button, how does anyone oppose it? How do you come out and say, well, I don't think that we should be talking about this, or I don't think that we should care about this. No one wants to say that. And so you really can't argue against something once it's been targeted at a problem that everyone agrees we should care about. And one thing that a critic of somebody who might read your blog, they might say, uh, right, by rejecting the value of them, are you saying that you don't really care about inequality and diversity in higher ed more broadly? How do you respond to a critic like that? I would say that there's a big difference between caring about something and valuing a particular kind of writing assignment. I think the problem of inequality in society and disparate educational outcomes is really important. But I also think that if you've got a writing assignment that pretends to want to hear a lot from us, but really just wants to check which side we're on, you don't need a two-page statement, a, a sentence saying, I endorse whatever book is currently trendy and maybe the subject of a faculty center reading group. That should be more than sufficient to tell them what they want to know. So I just want to pivot a little bit more to some advice that you give to professors or students who work in universities. These statements do have a real effect on what you're saying, uh, hiring, tenure. What are some advice that you would give to people who are inside the academy right now? I mean, the most practical advice, of course, is to play the game. But that's sometimes a little bit easier said than done, because to say convincingly what you think people want to hear, I mean, even though I just said that we all did well on writing assignments, a certain kind of sincerity can still be tricky. So I think the next best answer is to find a trusted person at an institution like the one you're applying to. If not at that particular institution, then at least a similar institution. Because although official university spokespeople will all say the exact same things about diversity, behind the scenes, different schools have very different expectations. You know, you can't assume that a private research university and a public commuter school 
have the same internal politics. They almost certainly don't. And so you should find someone, if not at that school that you're applying to, at least at a similar type of school and say, okay, what's going what's gonna to read well here? And ultimately, a job application is a sales pitch. And so one way to sell yourself while still retaining some honesty is to illuminate what is most distinctive about you and show how it makes you a human who can relate to students and their challenges. Um, this might involve a certain amount of boilerplate. So after doing this thing that doesn't fit the traditional mold, I'm able to relate to your diverse students and say the right things about it. But still, something that humanizes that journey, I think, will help to inject some honesty while still making the concessions to whatever it is that people need to hear. One of the arguments you make in the piece is that diversity statements really are a proxy of trying to see how compassionate you are as a person. And really, like, are you a good teacher? What's the quality of your teaching in terms of are you willing to help out a student in need? Can you adjust to students coming from different backgrounds? And so the underlying assumption that's made through these statements is that taking a certain ideological stance, a progressive stance on an issue, is a proxy for how compassionate you are and kind of your like your worth as a as a human. And I think that it's just incredibly a, a powerful observation because it reflects a lot around our views of politics beyond higher ed in general. So I was wondering if you can expand a bit more on that. I can say that, you know, hypocrisy is not exactly a novel observation. It's not something that a few social scientists discovered recently. There's a famous 18th century quote about how the loudest cries for liberty often come from slave owners. And Jesus talked about how the hypocrites love to pray in public. In my own life and work, I think one of the best examples I've seen of how ideology and compassion really have so little to do with each other is when I've done volunteer work. If you volunteer at, say, a homeless shelter, you will find a very wide range, not just of people who wind up homeless, but a very wide range of volunteers. You will find, on the one hand, some very obviously stereotypically liberal do-gooders with coexist bumper stickers on their cars, and you'll find some incredibly conservative church-going types, and you'll find everyone in between. And for all of their ideological differences, the one thing they have in common is that they are all very willing and eager to show up and do important work for other people. And I think if we took the people I've met while volunteering and put them into some sort of diversity training session or some book club to discuss whatever book on systemic disadvantage is currently trendy in academia, some of them would love it. And that's great. You know, they, they, they like that. They agree with it. Good. Some of them would absolutely hate it. But what they all have in common with each other is that when you ask the question, who's willing to give up some of their time and do some work to help other people, that's something they all have in common. And these are all people that I would be happy to have in the faculty lounge. I think that all of them are perfectly capable of doing good work for disadvantaged students. And so why would I choose to filter based on that. I think that experience with people who actually do good for others shows just how little ideology and compassion have to do with each other. In your mind, what would be an alternative approach? You look for teaching experience, and besides getting someone to just say for themselves, oh yes, I was a great teacher, 
ask for a rec letter from a supervisor or colleague who was in touch with what they were doing in the classroom. And I think a rec letter from someone who's actually seen them work with students is going to do far more than checking whether someone has read the most trendy book on diversity these days. Before we end, what do you want to make sure our audience takes away from your piece? What I think I want people to take away is that we are imposing this criterion that really has very little to do with actions. And the good news is that most people know this is kind of absurd, and so they aren't filtering very stringently. They're acting in good faith and accepting any reasonable statement. But the bad news is that these things are still sitting there ripe for abuse, and we're we're just leaving the door wide open for political operators who know how to tell us exactly what we want to hear. You know, we're really decoupling words from actions here, and that is just ripe for abuse. And so I hope we'll focus more on tangible experience. I think that's the best way to select people for a job. Alex Small on Heterodox Out Loud. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to stay updated for new and exciting conversations with our prolific and wide-ranging blog authors. In addition, you can meet many of them and hear other exciting speakers at our first in-person conference in over two years. It's being held in Denver in June. You can learn more at our website at heterodoxacademy.org. Big thanks to Davies Content for producing this show, to Kara Boyer on our communications team. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm Zach Rausch. Until next time.